You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 610 for February 15th, 2023. On this episode, trombonist Conrad Herwig. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Conrad talks about visual art, and you can hear that bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the show. You'll get thanked by me by name on an episode, and you'll get some occasional behind-the-scenes info or other bonus material. Again, that's thejazzsession.com join. Conrad Herwig and the Latin Side All-Stars are playing every Tuesday night at Django in the Roxy Hotel in New York, now through March 28th, 2023. Conrad's latest album in his Latin Side of series is The Latin Side of Mingus. Here's a little taste. Conrad Herwig, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. One of the things that is kind of amazing about your career is that, well, and your life, not just your career, because this I'm going to go back to uh, including people that you learned from when you were young, but taken in total, your experience spans from Louis Armstrong uh, via Trummy Young, who was a member of his band and with whom you studied, all the way to now in the year 2023. And I mean... Other than like if you told me you had played cards with Buddy Bolden or shot pool with Jelly Roll Morton, I mean, there's not there's not too much further back in the history of this music you can go than your lived experience actually goes. And yet you are still making vital and interesting and exciting music in 2023. It Do you ever have cause to kind of think back and think, wow, I have kind of spanned almost all of the music that there is to span with the people who have touched my life over the course of my career. I think jazz is always, you know, a music of now. So that, of course, I, you know, I have been so blessed in my life to have been 
around the greatest jazz musicians that ever lived. And the reason that I am a jazz trombone player is because of Trummy Young and his, you know, he was a mentor and an influence to, to us in Hawaii. My, you know, my teacher was his student. I was able to be around Trummy and that, that was the inspiration for me wanting to be a, a jazz trombone player. And the thing is, you know, you, you learn from the past and it's really a fusion in the moment. So, uh, I'm, I'm just so happy and blessed in my life. You know, I mean, Trummy Young played with Louis Armstrong and then, you know, in Hawaii, people don't really think of Hawaii as a jazz mecca for the listeners. You know, I did grow up in Hawaii. My father was in the military. I moved there when I was in junior high school. And that's basically my formative years in Hawaii. People don't think of Hawaii as a jazz mecca. But in those days, everybody who was going to the Far East, whether, you know, in to Japan or wherever they were going, they would stop for refueling in, in Honolulu. And so there was all kinds of activity with jazz musicians coming to Hawaii. I remember seeing the Basie Band and uh, Lionel Hampton's band and Clark Terry they had a cool jazz festival in Hawaii. So that was very influential. And that was the first time that I met Clark Terry was in Hawaii. And then my first gig out of school was with Clark Terry. And then the progression obviously has been exponential in a way. I, I've just been so, so fortunate in New York to play with, you know, these great musicians. So the answer to your question is, Sometimes it's a little daunting to think about all I've done, but then again, we're looking forward to the future. That's why we're here talking about the fusion of Afro-Caribbean music and what we're doing with the Latin side. So let's segue into the the weekly residency at the Django, which is running now through March 28th. And Mm -hmm. uh, it does focus on the Latin side project, which itself has now spent more than 25 years and features the music of many of the great names in jazz via the lens of uh, Afro-Caribbean music, which you have had uh, a really intimate, extensive relationship with for decades with Eddie Palmieri, Tito Puente, Paquito de Rivera, Michelle Camilo. The list goes on and on and on. Can you talk about how the series got started? Uh, I, think, I think it's 26 years ago now with the Latin side. When we talk about good fortune, I had the good fortune when I first came to New York City to start and become, you know, really the jazz trombone player in the orchestra of Mario Bausa, Mario Bauza, as some people would pronounce it. And he's the godfather of Afro-Cuban music. I mean, he is our master. I mean, he's, he's our, you know, our idol in that music. And I was with him playing in his <clears throat> orchestra 
and I met Victor Paz and then met Eddie Palmieri. And then through that, you know, Tito Puente and Celia Cruz and everybody else that the all time greats of Afro-Caribbean and Afro-Cuban music. And so what happened was when I started with Eddie Palmieri, we, you know, we were performing and as Eddie got into his Afro-Caribbean octet, which was Donald Harrison, Brian Lynch and myself, um, Eddie likes people to take chances. <clears throat> um, unlike some other bands, you know, where you have a certain role to play, Eddie wanted us to experiment. And sometimes what we would do is we would just superimpose different themes. We might superimpose on, on a Eddie Palmieri Montuna, for example, in one of his tunes like Azucar or he has another tune, Chocolate Ice Cream. We would superimpose a theme of Thelonious Monk or Benny Golson. And we started one gig, we started just playing impressions over an Eddie Palmieri Montuno. And then we might've done Blue Train on a different gig. And the idea came actually with a friend of mine, Bob Belden, who's an amazing jazz saxophonist and you know musical mind producer who was involved with all kinds of different folks. Um, with Herbie Hancock and Joe Henderson and, you know, Verve Records and different. And so Bob and I, you know, Bob, I, I mentioned to Bob or he came to the Blue Note and we said, wow, man, that's a really cool idea. And then the opportunity presented it for, for myself, for, you know, for us to record. And I was like, yeah, you know, we just said, let's just do a whole album of John Coltrane's music through an Afro-Cuban, Afro-Caribbean perspective and just reimagine all the arrangements and because Eddie Palmieri is one of my best friends on the planet he came and recorded with us as well as Daniel Perez and just you know I mean Andy Gonzalez and John Benitez and Milta Cardona and just a cast of, a just amazing cast of uh, musicians you know lineup and it just it really came together and Obviously, one of the catalysts, I mean, everything, it's all Afro, it's all Africa. And it goes back to whether it's, you know, Afro-Caribbean music, whether it's Afro-Brazilian music, jazz, which is Afro-American music, black music, it all goes back to this lens of Africa and the study of these, you know, really sacred forms that are thousands of years old that have like been transmuted to, you know, to the Americas. And, you know, Eddie Palmieri has told me on a number of occasions that I earned my salsa badge um, playing uh, dances and really literally thousands of, of gigs with, with Eddie and Tito Puente and others. And so we, with the utmost respect and, and uh, you know, studious, qualities we took those forms and i ran it by eddie and then we we superimposed john coltrane's music it, it worked so perfectly um and that's how this whole thing started one day they came and took the communists and i said nothing because i was not a communist then one day they burned the catholic churches and I said nothing because I was born a Protestant. 
One day they came and took the unionists, and I said nothing because I was not a unionist. One day they came and took the people of the Jewish faith, and I said nothing because I had no faith left. Then one day they came and they took me, and I could say nothing because I was as guilty as they were for not speaking out and saying that we all have a right to freedom. In the years since, you've done uh, Latin side of albums for uh, Miles, Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, Joe Henderson, Horace Silver, the most recent, which is last year's Mingus. And when I think of some of those artists, some of them seem a little closer to the Latin side of things than others. And I'm I'm curious about how you, in terms of arranging, how you walk that line between staying true to whatever you consider essential about their music and staying true to whatever you consider essential about the Afro-Cuban or Afro-Caribbean tradition. How do you how do you meld those things as an arranger? I can honestly say, for example, from the start with the John Coltrane project, we we were looking for compositions that seemed harmonically to fit into the forms, you know, in other words, tunes like Impressions. I mean, blues, modal tunes, tunes that would focus on sort of a minor montuno. Um, that was one aspect of it. It's kind of intuitive and, and you know, uh, sort of a hive mind. You know, at the time when we started this project, Brian Lynch and I were working together all the time with Eddie Palmieri and, you know, with others. We had played thousands of gigs together. It's an interesting conundrum, really, because um, Eddie Palmieri said Afro-Caribbean music is the fusion of the 21st century. And so a lot of folks have tried to, quote unquote, Latinize music. And sure. I think, you know, there's there is. So you're considering the harmony, of course. You know, we went back and did a second album of John Coltrane called Viva Coltrane on the crisscross label. And so you can take the more harmonically complex tunes, you can take the more modal tunes, you can take blues forms, you can take ballads, you can find uh, an Afro-Cuban, Afro-Caribbean setting that works for those, like a bolero, for example, for a ballad. What we've tried to do is also investigate on a deeper level, and I'll just give you one example, because we talked about the Latin side of Mingus, which is our latest project, um, is we... Uh, we recorded Duke Ellington's Sound of Love and a really a colleague of mine and a close friend uh, where I teach at Rutgers University, Mark Stacio, and I put together that arrangement. And the idea was to take the form called Yambu, which there's three forms of, of rumba, um, Guawanco, Columbia, and Yambu. And Yambu is the slower form. And we superimposed the Yambu structure on top of Charles Mingus's Duke Ellington's Sound of Love. Um, I think a lot of folks, and, and I can go back tune by tune and tell you where we, you know, <clears throat> took a, a, a different, you know, tried to superimpose a different rhythmic form or a, a composition of Eddie Palmieri's or Tito Puente's or whatever, and 
mix those two together. Like, I mean, for example, on the one of the other albums we did with John Coltrane and Lonnie's Lament, we just we tried to take a cha-cha. I call it a power cha, and I always joke around. It's a combination of Tito Puente and McCoy Tyner. And so we're dealing with each composition individually, but the the idea is that there's an intuitive inner path that leads us to the arrangement and not to be long-winded but when you for example um i saw a great movie which i can't name right now recently is a sort of an art house movie on the life of michelangelo and the only thing i can tell you is you know the great sculptor looks at a piece of marble and that sculpture is there within that piece of marble and it's an individual vision, but there's this intuitive sense of chipping away here and creating there and polishing there. And eventually you end up with the Pieta or you end up with, you know, David or you, you know, and right. it's the same, it's the same with uh, jazz. There's an intuitive sense that sometimes you can't put your finger on because obviously there's hundreds of Mingus compositions, hundreds of, you know, John Coltrane compositions and Horace Silver compositions and Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock, the people that we've, um, Miles that we've addressed, you know, I mean, they recorded hundreds of albums and, you know, but it's something there like, a, like the way a sculptor looks at a piece of marble. That's how you look at the a composition, you know, for jazz musicians, one ultimate factor about what we choose is also what is a framework for improvisation. In other words, the, the way I always describe it is, you know, the audience is the canvas and we're painters in sound. And so when we're painting that, that sound portrait, then there's a frame and the frame are these compositions that are, for example, um, impressions, blue train, uh, you know, so what? Those are a frame for improvisation. And it's the reason why jazz musicians gravitate to those forms, because it allows us to sort of recreate and paint our own picture using the canvas of these fantastic jazz masters. Let's take a quick break from the interview so I can remind you about becoming a member. It's super easy. Just go to thejazzsession.com slash join and kick in five bucks a month. Why would you do that? Well, you do get a bunch of stuff, which I'll tell you about in a second. But honestly, even more importantly, you help keep the massive archive of the Jazz Session available online for free to whoever wants it. I think that's really important. The show's been going for nearly 16 years now. And during that time, it has amassed quite a collection of audio of people who've been making creative of improvised music during the life of the show. I would like that to be available for anybody who wants to listen to it. Jazz fans, jazz musicians, jazz students, the regular public, whoever. And to do that, it actually takes a fair amount of money because these shows get downloaded a lot and the bandwidth for that is pretty high and that's what your money goes to. But you don't get only satisfaction in return you also get early access to every episode you get a bonus show on which the guest from the main show talks about something non-musical that's bringing them joy you also get thanked by name on an episode and you'll get some behind the scenes info from time to time all that at the jazz join for just five bucks a month 
Each episode, I like to thank some folks who are members of the Patreon community. And this month, I am tipping my cap to Ken Smoker, Adam Starr, and Michael Wright. You all are wonderful. And now, back to the show. talking about uh you know looking at these tunes kind of in a fresh a fresh way for these projects and in the case of uh the latin side of mingus which is the most recent one which came out last year as we mentioned that's that music is music you've been playing in the mingus band for 25 years and i I wonder if in the course of choosing repertoire and doing the arrangements for the latin side of mingus if you were surprised by any fresh looks at tunes that I mean, this book is a book that you know very intimately. I wonder if you were surprised by any of the things you found in giving a, a fresh look at these at these compositions. Well, Mingus is one of the more amazing composer virtuoso musicians, you know, in the whole history of of music, really. Agreed. And as are all of these. I mean. But Mingus is so interesting because those of us who've really played Mingus, as you said, I mean, I've spent almost 30 years um, performing Mingus's music with the Mingus Big Band, the Mingus Dynasty, um, Mingus Orchestra. Um, Sue Mingus was an extremely close friend of mine and a mentor to me in many, many ways, not just musically. And, but the thing with Mingus music, it's like peeling an onion. You know, I'll give you an example, is that a beginning jazz musician, I'm talking about someone who's in elementary school, who may be 10 or 12 years old, they can take a Mingus composition, whether it's Goodbye Pork Pie Hat or, you know, one of Mingus's blues tunes and play that. And the most seasoned veteran can take the same exact composition and you're still putting that there's still something fresh about the perspective of Mingus's music. And, you know, you can't say that about everything. For example, that 10 or 12 year old beginning, you know, first blossoming jazz musician is probably not going to play Giant Steps or Countdown or the most complicated Coltrane Matrix tunes or Charlie Parker's, you know, Anthropology or whatever, just because it takes time to build your chops to that level. So there's something really connecting, you know, uh, there's immediate with Mingus's music that you don't get. I mean, there are certain tunes by all different composers, but Mingus just has this really interesting and unique quality. The other thing, I mean, just talking about Mingus is I've had many people over the years come to me on 
Mingus gigs, you know, Mingus big band gigs and say, you know, I really don't like jazz, but I love Mingus. <laughs> sure. And then, and I tell them, I guess you must love jazz then too. And they go, you know, you're right. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, literally people who actually almost viscerally don't like jazz, they just, you know, maybe they fell in love with like, you know, a Jeff Beck or maybe Eric Clapton did it too, you know, goodbye pork by hat. And then all of a sudden they're drawn in and it opens a window into a different world where people start hearing jazz in a, in a certain way. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think what ends up happening is when we play these Mingus tunes um, and we're playing some complicated tunes, like all the things you could be by now, if Sigma Freud's wife was your mother, um, just complicated heads. Of course, it's built on all the things you are, which is a standard that we know. <clears throat> but you, it's, it's, a, it's a really fresh canvas. And so every gig we play, we're able to take a tune like Gunslinging Bird or Pork Pie Hat or Boogie Stop or whatever it is. And of course, we're putting our own flavor and our own perspective with, um, you know, the the Afro-Cuban rhythmic forms and clave and cascara and tumbao. But within those contexts, it really is fresh. And the closest thing I can say is it goes back to art. If you take these great artists, you know, Cezanne or Monet, I mean, Monet was there in Giverny painting water lilies. And, you know, to one person say, well, how, how many times can you paint water lilies and you say well I could paint them every day for the rest of my life and they look different and beautiful and fresh every day and so Mingus reminds me of like Monet in that way where you can come back to these songs you could come back to these forms that we love to improvise over and they're fresh so I think that's um you know that's what is so interesting about Mingus's music but to take it one step further, I think when you look at the entire body of what we've done with the Latin side and Latin side all-stars in 25 years, it's a little self-centered in the way of saying, I'm going to pick music or we're going to pick music that we love to play. Whether it's Herbie Hancock's One Finger Snap or Actual Proof or whether it's Wayne Shorter's Footprints or Ping Pong or whether it's Horace Silver, Song for My Father, or Joe Henderson in Urge, you know, we could just go on and on and on about, you know, Miles Davis and So What and Blue and Green, etc. These are all what I would call desert island compositions. In other words, you know, if if you were forced, let's say, to play one composition for the rest of your life, um, for me, I could play John Coltrane's Love Supreme for the rest of my life, if, and I would be perfectly satisfied, or Blue and Green, or Inner Urge, or Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. I mean, we're blessed that we don't have to do that, but I think you kind of catch my drift that these are, not only are they iconic, because there's tons of iconic compositions, it has to resonate with the individual artist, I mean, the musician, which I guess in this case is me and the guys in the band, it resonates with us. And then that way, then it starts to resonate with the audience and it sounds fresh and it gives us the chance every time when we perform 
which is becoming quite regular now, that then, you know, we're able to take it in different directions. Kind of an interesting position, a position that's somewhat rare in the jazz world these days in this residency at the Django and the Roxy Hotel, which is that you get to continually revisit uh, both the members of the band and the repertoire over the course of a couple months every week. And that, I mean, that used to be the way for, you know, every night for weeks at a time, but it's been a very, very long time since that was a common thing. And now you're in kind of this beautiful place where over the course of a couple months, uh, the music gets to, uh, you know, grow and evolve. However, music does when people get together repeatedly. I'm just curious. As we're recording this, we're a few weeks into the the process, and I'm just wondering what it's been like so far to get to to regroup and uh, and see the evolution. It's a, I use the word blessing, and I really mean it. It's a blessing to be able to have a residency and have a home for the music, and to have a working band. Um, with some of the greatest jazz musicians and, you know, Afro-Caribbean musicians in the world. You're right. And I'm, you know, I, I'm a dinosaur. I'm not even, I used to call myself a young dinosaur, but now I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> Is that, you know, when I started in the late 70s into the early 80s, like moving to New York, and I was with Clark Terry, but then I started with Buddy Rich. We would go on tour and we would play Ronnie Scott's for a month in London. Right. You know, I mean, six nights a week for a month sold out. I mean, you go back and and that was sort of a change up from the time when, you know, Thelonious Monk at the five spot for nine months or a year, guys working <laughs> these gigs. I mean, you know, and there's modern correlation like Bobby Short working, you know, at the Cafe Carlisle or something for 20 or 30 years. I mean, but. The, but point the fact is, that we could individually name all of the people with those kinds of gigs, <laughs> that I think that speaks to how rare they kind of have become in the in right the in the world. modern world. I, you know, the thing is with that is um, there is more of a sense. I don't even know of the exact way to describe it. It's it's not a lack of attention, but it's well, I guess what it it it's it's there's been a progression and a change in people's attention span. I was, I forget where I was reading that the, in the modern world with cell phones and computers and iPads and every other thing is that I think the average attention span is 28 seconds. <laughs> I don't know where they got that, 
But, the, you know, I think it's because if you keep your phone on, you're interrupted every 28 seconds by something, whether it rings or you get a, you know, a bell goes off from an app or, a, you know, whatever. Of course, in the old, you know, the old days, okay, boomer days, you know, there weren't as many distractions, you know. I mean, in other words, I guess people were able to accept having these long residencies. The thing that's interesting is I think people are still able um you know we've had people return multiple times even just the past three weeks that we're doing this and hopefully are going to come back if you approach something with honesty you know with the intent and effort that you're giving everything your you know your highest effort for a creative goal like you know honoring this fantastic music with with great musicians then it's exciting and it's exciting for people to listen to and they want to listen to it multiple times, you know. So it is, it is, we're very fortunate. And, you know, the thing that happens when you are working on a consistent basis with a band is there's a comfort zone and a level of trust that is built up. Now, with this particular band, we've all played literally thousands of gigs together in different configurations, whether we've played together with Eddie Palmieri, whether we've played together with the Mingus big band, whether we've played together with the Latin side where we've had probably a thousand gigs over the years, over the last 25 years. And then every other thing we've done, whether it's been with Michelle Camilo or with Paquita de Rivera, or, you know, there's a lot of interaction. The jazz community is large, but it's sort of a small in its own way too. And so there's a sense of trust that's built up with musicians where you can take chances. You don't, you know, you're able to stretch harmonically and people really, it's as if we know what we're going to do, even though we don't know what we're going to do. We're, you know, there's this sense of, of connection on a, on a higher level um, musically. And it's, it's fun and exciting to be able to do that, you know, and uh, that, that happens when you can play regularly and when you have a, you know, a, a consist, like a home to do it. Before we wrap up, can you mention some of the folks who are playing with you in the Latin side All-Stars? Yes. Um, I have on drums, Robbie Amin, one of the greats of all time. You know, he played with, Dizzy Gillespie, we've played together with Eddie Palmieri. Um, he was with uh, W. Valentine, Dave Valentine for years. Um, also, he had his band with Negro. And, uh, and Robbie and I, we started playing together when we were 15 years old in music camp. Um, just fantastic, you know, drummer. Ruben Rodriguez on bass has been with everybody. Tito Puente, Eddie Palmieri, um, with Robbie in, uh, in Sete Solar, um, and, and Ruben Blades, who is also an amazing musician and part of, uh, this new Mingus recording, although he's not performing with us on these gigs. Um, then you have, uh, Bill O'Connell on piano, who's played with everybody from Sonny Rollins and Chet Baker to, Dave Valentine and his own fantastic recordings. And he's contributed some amazing arrangements 
on congas we have camila molina who's currently the captain of the rhythm section with eddie palmieri who i've performed with you know for years and then craig handy one of the all-time great saxophonists with art blakey and herbie hancock his own bands you know his own fantastic records and he's you know been on the scene and also with the mingus big band we've literally played a thousand gigs and then um now for this three months is alex norris on trumpet who also is playing with the mingus big band has played with um spanish harlem and all kinds of he's playing with michelle rosewoman and he's playing all kinds of you know stuff just a fantastic uh musician so the front line we've played together literally for decades the back line you know we're we're all in it and you know as i tell the audience i mean there's a reason we call them the latin side all-stars because these guys are the best of the best and uh we're we're so fortunate to be playing you know this amazing body of music and uh being able to present it at django every tuesday night my guest is Conrad Herwig, the Latin side all-stars, as uh, Conrad just said, are at Django Tuesdays through March 28th in the Roxy Hotel in New York. So if you are in or around New York City, get there because this is uh, it's a special group of musicians. I mean, as we just heard, that is a that is an A-list who's who of people uh, playing some incredible music that has been uh, reimagined through uh, Conrad's lens and brain. And uh, it's it really rewards repeat listening so go more than once conrad it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about the music and and even more of a pleasure hearing the music for all these years thanks so much for being here thank you jason it's a pleasure look forward to seeing everyone in, at the django and just uh keep on supporting live music and keep on supporting this art form that we love so much Thanks to my guest, Conrad Herwig. Remember, you can see Conrad and the Latin Side All-Stars every Tuesday night at Django in New York's Roxy Hotel, now through March 28, 2023. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. Message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. Jazz Sesh, by the way, is J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. Take a second, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or in whichever app you use to listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. You can get my newsletter and keep up to date on everything I'm involved in by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on the newsletter link. And finally, if you like what you just heard, become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. I'll see you back here next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.